podcast for Sunday, September 20th, 2015. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The average lifespan for a human is 77 years. So, uh, that's not to say if you've passed that, you should be worried. Well, there's lots of humans, so I know we have a more mature congregation at this service. So, uh, But let's just say the average human spends, uh, we get 77 years. Um, they calculated how much we do with what we do. And, for example, uh, we spend about three years of our life on the phone. Uh, sorry, two years on the phone, three years in the bathroom, one year getting dressed, although that's with the average of, uh, I think it was something like 20 minutes a day. I think women kind of push that average up because I'm like two and a half minutes tops is all it takes me to get ready. Um, And nine years of our lives watching television. Now, that's according to the video, the amazing video that you didn't get to see. That was made a few years ago, so I looked up a few more recent stats, and now with the smartphones, uh, we actually spend now close to nine of those 77 years connected to our phones and 12 years glued to our televisions. Now, the real kicker, of course, is that they say that the average Christian only spends seven months of their life connected to God. Seven months. That's a staggering fact. And rather than getting defensive or offering up feeble justifications or arguing why we're different, maybe even hanging our heads in shame, I invite us to, to, to use that statistic as motivation to change. Because all of us can spend more time with the Lord. Can't we? One of the most life-changing ways that we interact through God, with God is through the power of the Bible through the Holy Scriptures. And I dare say that many people, in fact, many Christians, feel overwhelmed when it comes to reading the Bible. We feel like we don't know enough to really study it on our own unless we're in an official Bible study. Well, fear not, I aim to change that today. Over the course of the next four weeks of this sermon series, I'm going to attempt to summarize the entire Bible That's right. We're staying until 2.30 every week. No. I'm calling this series The Grand Sweep, Rediscovering the Bible. And I hope that by the time we're done, you'll not only have a better sense of what happens throughout the various books of the Bible, but also get a sense of the big themes, the grand sweeps that runs through all of Scripture. And I'll also be giving you a tool by which anyone can open the Bible and start hearing a word from God, which will inevitably expand the quality and quantity of time that we spend with the Lord. One of the books that I've been reading to help me better prepare for this series is J. Ellsworth Callis' book, A Hop, Skip, and Jump Through the Bible. Reverend Callis is a retired United Methodist pastor. He's the former president, and uh, he's a current professor at Asbury Theological Seminary in Kentucky. He's been the presenter on the widely popular Disciple Bible Study series, and he's author of numerous books. Well, in this book, A Hop, Skip, and Jump Through the Bible, Dr. Callis says this. The Bible was written by scores of authors over hundreds of years and in two different languages, Hebrew and Greek. Most of the authors never knew one another, and in a majority of instances, they had no idea what the others wrote. 
It's hard to imagine scores of authors separated by time and space, living in very different historical periods, with experiences unique to their periods coming together with a continuing theme, let alone any really discernible plot. And yet, there is a plot. A divine plot. It's the story of God's relationship with our human race. You might even call it a love story between God and his people. As Dr. Callis puts it, yet it's the story of divine love putting up with our indifference and rebellion. Now, in order to discover this divine plot, this grand sweep, we get to see it unfolding in the lives of people, specific people, characters from Scripture. The amazing thing about Scripture is the more time we spend with it, as we search for this grand sweep, we get a sense that the plot continues from the pages of the good book into the pages of our own lives. When we read the Bible, we become a part of the story. We become a part of the grand sweep. You see, friends, this sermon series isn't about being able to know more about the Bible in four weeks or or having more head knowledge. It's about being able to connect to God so we can live out our faith, our heart relationship. We'll begin by engaging in the story, the grand sweep. And without further ado, to uh, continue where we left off with the children and to borrow a phrase from Maria von Trapp, let's start at the very beginning. Very good place to start. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. By the way, we're going to be using our Bibles a lot during the next four weeks. If you have one at home or on your smartphone, I invite you to open it up or bring it with you each week. If you don't have one, you can always grab the red Bible that's in the pew uh, underneath in front of you. Then again, this may be a great time if you don't have a Bible to go out and buy one. And I know Pastor Angela and I would love to help you if you have any questions about which, uh, what type of Bible or which translation might be best for you, just ask. We're going to start in the very beginning of the very first book, Genesis 1, chapter 1. And by the way, as, we're going, as I'm going through today, I'm not going to ask you necessarily to turn pages, but as you hear me say different books of the Bible, you can kind of just flip along to get a sense of how we're moving through together. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So in the beginning, there was God, and nothing else, period. The storyteller isn't interested in talking about how God got to be there in the beginning, just that when everything started, God was already there. And these opening five verses tell us some quite amazing things about our God, if we look closely enough. In the beginning, God created. So we serve a creating God, uh, not just a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but a God who creates even today, even the here and now. God is always creating We serve a God who's also present in the spirit. Verse 2 tells us that a wind from God swept across the face of the waters. The Hebrew word for wind is ruach. It can be also translated spirit of God. You might even say this is the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 3, God said. God is present in the word. 
And if we jump ahead to the New Testament, the Gospel of John reminds us that Jesus was the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So here in the first three verses of the very first chapter of the very first book, we're told that God is so amazing, he can be expressed in three forms, creator, spirit, and word. And maybe that's why in verse 26 of chapter 1, when it's time for humans to be created, God says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. It's not that God has some kind of multiple personality syndrome. Rather, this is evidence that God existed in the form of the Trinity from the very beginning. Hmm. These opening verses tell us that God is also a communicator. And if you follow through the rest of chapter 1, every time a new day comes and God creates something else, God speaks it into being. God speaks and it happens. And God follows it up saying to no one in particular, or maybe to everyone, that it is good. God is so in love with the creation he is making that God talks to it, which tells me that prayer makes sense because God loves being in communication with his creation, with each one of us, and all of us were created good. Now, I've discovered when you start to read any section of the Bible, there's three questions that you can be asking. No matter where you are in reading the Bible, three questions. What does this passage tell me about God? What does this tell me about us as human beings? And what does it say about our relationship with God? Now, some people aren't aware that the Bible actually has two creation stories in the book of Genesis. Story one encompasses all of chapter one and the first three verses of chapter two. And we've already talked about some of the insights uh, that we find out about God in this, in this uh, first story. How God sees everything that God has created as good and that we're all created in God's image. Each of us carry an element of the divine within us. And the fact that God has ordained rest. Can I get an amen for resting and naps and taking a break into our cycle and rhythm of our weekly lives? If God needed to rest, then surely so do we. And then there's creation story number two. This is the Adam and Eve story that so many of us are familiar with, beginning at chapter 2, verse 4, and running for about three chapters. This is the Garden of Eden, serpent, forbidden fruit, uh, naked with fig leaves story. This story tells us a lot about us as humans and how we have let sin creep into our world and into our relationship with God. One of the lessons the second story tells us is that whether good or bad, the choices we make always have consequences. The choices we make always have consequences. And not just for those of us who are making the choices, but to others around us, including God and our relationship with God. Now, by the time we get to chapter 6, you can flip ahead to chapter 6, things on earth have gone from bad to worse, and we pick up in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was very sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So along comes a guy named Noah. Noah was one of the few people whose heart wasn't so completely evil and wicked that God puts him on this floating zoo building project and God's judgment comes upon the earth by way of a flood. The Bible says floods from above and from below overwhelmed the earth, leaving nothing left but what was carried on the ark. 
Well, of course, and all the fish that got a pass because and there's water everywhere, right? But the countless animals who didn't find their names on Noah's boarding list, they also suffered because of the sins of humanity. Near the end of the story, Genesis 9, 13 to be exact, we find a rainbow. And God decides that if he reverts to wiping out the whole human race every time we mess up, well, he may just be doing that all the time. And so God relents on his punishment and opts for mercy and grace. This is a key change in the biblical story. Because we see this theme of mercy and grace being woven through all of the rest of scriptures. In chapter 12, we meet Abraham and Sarah, actually Abram and Sarai at this point. A story that makes all of our senior citizens stand up and cheer. Because God chooses two people at the age of 75 and 66, respectively, to begin an amazing journey. He doesn't tell them where they're going to go, simply to trust him. And he promises to give them two things, their own land and their own people. They're childless at this moment in the story. But here's the neat part about God's call in their lives. God is going to make them a blessing. Not just to bless them, and not even just to have kids so that their lives are blessed. No, Genesis 12 verse 3 says this, And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Bible is constantly talking about God's special relationship with his chosen people. In the Old Testament, we call that the Hebrew people, the Israelites. In the New Testament, we look at the early church and how God blessed that early church. But there's something, uh, there's another theme, a sweep that runs even deeper. And that's the understanding that God's ultimate object of love isn't just his chosen people, isn't just the church of the New Testament, it's the entire human race. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is constantly trying to widen the circles of who is included. We like making the circles smaller, and God is pushing our boundaries time and time again throughout the scriptures. Abraham and Sarah are definitely not perfect. At times, they make some really wacky decisions. As Dr. Callis puts it, it's a reminder that God has no perfect persons with whom to work with, so God decides to use the best available, right? That's all of us, the best available. And the three, and three great faiths of this world, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, we all trace our histories back to Abraham and Sarah. Hmm. Next comes Isaac, chapter 21 of Genesis. Isaac is the child of Abraham and Sarah's old age. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born. Can you imagine starting, going the whole diapers and preschool and all of that when you're a hundred years old? Isaac is most known for almost being sacrificed by his dad. Uh, a very peculiar and thought-provoking story in chapter 22 of Genesis. His only other memorable moment really comes much later in life when he's deceived by the younger of his twin boys, Jacob. Jacob, he's another one of those less than perfect people that God somehow uses. He makes his appearance first in Genesis 25, verse 26. His name, Jacob, literally means grabber. And that's what he's doing all throughout his story. He's constantly grabbing for things that's not his. Birthrights, blessings, wives, sheep, you name it. And yet, after his critical encounter with God in chapter 32, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. 
Israel, a name that would become synonymous with God's people. When all is said and done, Jacob has 13 children, 12 sons and one daughter, with four separate mothers who all managed to live together under one roof. I mean, that's the original, original reality TV show, if there ever was one. We speak of his 12 sons as the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 becomes a number we see throughout the grand sweep, including the number of disciples that Jesus chose. Then we have Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. He comes into the spotlight in chapter 37. And most of the next 14 chapters, which is almost one-third of the entire book of Genesis, is dealt with Joseph and his amazing story. He's this young punk dreamer with a big ego that gets on the nerves of his older brothers so much so that they want to kill him, literally want to kill him. Instead, they sell him off into slavery. He goes into Egypt. He prospers. Then he's wrongly accused of sexual harassment. He's thrown into jail. He's forgotten. And somehow, he miraculously is elevated to be the second in command of the entire nation of Egypt. But the most important part of Joseph's story is that he is the reason that the rest of his family comes to Egypt. We need them to be in Egypt for the next part of this grand sweep, this divine story to unfold. You see, in Egypt, over time, the Hebrew people will be made into slaves. And for centuries, they live in a foreign land. And this is how the children of Israel become the nation of Israel. When Joseph gets ready to die at the end of the book of Genesis, he reminds his brothers of the bigger picture, of the grand sweep of what God is doing, what God had promised Abraham. Genesis 50, 24 says this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He even asked his brothers, don't leave my bones here. Dig me back up and take me to the, to the land that God promised. I don't want to be left behind. Now, I want you to take your finger on the book on the last chapter of Genesis and flip the page to the first chapter of Exodus. As you flip that page, 400 years pass between when the story in Genesis finishes And when the story in Exodus picks up, 400 years since Joseph's death, the scene has changed dramatically. I mean, when they originally came to Egypt, they were just an extended family of of just around 100 people. Things have changed. Exodus 1, verse 7. The Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And of course, because so much time has passed, right? Four centuries have passed. The new leaders, of course, have forgotten who Joseph ever was and the position that he held. And now the Israelites are seen, the Hebrews are seen as a potential enemy in the country in which they live to the Egyptians. They are oppressed as slaves. The Egyptians are worried that they might, that their slave labor force might actually rebel and leave, and they want to make sure that they know their place and that they stay doing their bidding. In fact, the current king of Egypt, the pharaoh, has a plan to kill off all of the Hebrew boys so that he can't grow any larger as a people. He wants them to be drowned in the Nile River. But at least one boy survives. 
A husband and wife from the tribe of Levi dare to defy the king's decree. They save their newborn baby. They eventually put him in a basket and send him adrift on top of the river. Pharaoh wanted him under the river. They put him on top of the river. The boy gets pulled out of the water by one of Pharaoh's daughters. He's raised in Pharaoh's own household, the royal palace. Pharaoh has no idea that his family is providing for one of the very Hebrew boys he wanted to be killed. It's a great example of how God uses the playbook of the enemy as an instrument of grace for his people. The boy's name becomes Moses after the act of drawing him out of the water. Mo spends the first 40 years living in Pharaoh's courts. Then he flees to the hills to escape a murder charge. And yes, he was guilty of that charge. He gets married, has kids, spends another 40 years as a shepherd in the hills before God calls him to the task at hand and to the next chapter of this story. And that's a chapter of deliverance. The book of Exodus gets its name because it's the story of a grand exit from slavery and captivity to freedom. This is why our African-American brothers and sisters of this country, when they were slaves, adopted Moses' story as their own. It wasn't just a great story from Scripture. This was their also quest for freedom, trusting that God, what God has done in the past, God will do again and again. And although this is this grand march of freedom, more than half of the pages in the book of Exodus are spent in the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments and the other laws that come after it, and then of establishing God's plans for the first place of worship, the tabernacle. To me, this says we can't just be people of the law. It's not enough to know the do's and the don'ts of Scripture. We have to balance that with worship, to be in relationship with God. God doesn't want to just say, do this, don't do this. God says, this is how you get along with me and with others when you do this. But along the way, stay in touch. Come to the tabernacle. Come to church. Come to worship. Make that a regular part of your life because that's how you get the most out of this world. The book of Leviticus, you can turn to that page, gets its name from the tribe of Levi, the same tribe that Moses came from. There's a part in the Exodus story where the tribe of Levi comes to the aid of Moses when all the other tribes have abandoned him and fallen away. And from that day forward, the Levites are made the priests, the priestly tribe. They provide music for worship. They were the praise team. They're the caretakers. They set up the worship space for the community. They taught the law. They were Israel's teachers. They interpreted the law. They were Israel's lawyers. They even examined the people during certain illnesses to see if they're clean or unclean. They were also like medical counselors, if you will. When the people of Israel eventually settle into the promised land, the Levites have no section of land for their own. Instead, they're given 48 cities spread throughout the nation. And the other tribes were called to support the Levites through their tithes and offerings. And we of a church have been taking offerings for the Levites and the priests and the leaders of our congregations ever since. So the book of Leviticus is sort of like our rules for spiritual etiquette. Dr. Callis reminds us that when Jesus was asked about the greatest of commandments, he said, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That last part, the neighbor as yourself, that comes from the book of Leviticus, 19, verses 18. 
if this grand sweep of Scripture is all about our relationship as humans to God, then Leviticus is how we maintain that relationship through our sacred rituals, through our worship, through our prayer, along with anything that might get in the way of us loving God or our neighbors. The book of Numbers gets its name from the census of Israel. This was taken when they were wandering around the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Moses had led them out of slavery and captivity in Egypt, and they're getting close to their destination, so close they can almost taste it. And so Moses sends out 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. He gives them a simple job, go into the land, check it out, let us know what it's like, And if you can pick up some groceries on your way back, that would be great. Because we've just been eating this manna every day for so long. Come on. We'd love to have some fruit. So the 12 spies go out. They come back. They bring this this huge thing of grapes and other fruits back. And they bring back a big report of fear. Ten of the 12 believe that it's far too dangerous. The people are too big. They'll never survive in this new land. But the other two, Jacob or Joshua and Caleb, disagree. And they say, no, no, trust God. God will provide. Well, unfortunately, the majority report wins out, and the people of Israel side with the ten who were afraid. Quite possibly because, and maybe this is another theme of Scripture, it's always easier to do nothing than to accept a new challenge. Right? It's always easier to stick with what we know with the status quo than with stepping out in faith on a new opportunity that God places before us. Well, the result of this unwillingness to move ahead was that this the people had to to wander in the wilderness for 40 more years. Basically, God allows all the grumpy old people to die out in the wilderness, to let all of their fear and uncertainty and unwillingness to trust God, to let that just dissolve in 40 years of wandering so God can bring the next generation into the promised land. The story is going to continue. The question is, are we willing to move with where God is going? Hmm. That's another theme that's repeated all throughout time. The, The human tendency to doubt God's provisions and God's call. It happens all throughout Scripture. God places a call upon someone's life, and the first response is, no, no, no. No, you've got to be thinking about someone else, God, because surely I can't do it. Everyone says that in Scripture. The question is, do they continue to say that or do they move ahead with what God is calling for them to do? There's other happenings in the book of Numbers, including people challenging Moses' authority. His own brother and sister are questioning, like, well, how come you get to be up in front of everyone? Give us a little bit of the love and action too, right? And this amazingly hilarious story in chapter 22 and 23 about a guy named Balaam and his donkey. And then as the book ends, we get to meet Moses' successor, a young man named Joshua, who was one of the two spies that said, no, God can do this. Finally, we come to the book of Deuteronomy, which gets its name from the Greek word meaning second law. Dr. Callis Callis calls this book Moses' valedictory address. The people are now on the edge of the land that has been promised to their ancestors many, many, many years and, and, and generations before. And so the The book of Deuteronomy tells this story in two ways. First, it recounts God's wondrous acts on behalf of Israel, reminding them of all the amazing things that God has already done and brought them through to this point. 
We need that in our lives. We need to remember where we've been as individuals, as a church, as a people, right? What has God done to get us to this point? And second, Deuteronomy reminds people of God's laws. Don't forget, this is how we're to relate to one another. This is how God wants us to treat one another. This is how God wants us to relate to him. And at the end of the book, Moses reminds the people of just how important these two aspects are. Remembering the past and keeping God's laws. So, if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy 32, verse 46. Deuteronomy 32, verse 46. Moses said to them, Take to heart all the words that I am giving in witness against you today. Give them as a command to your children so that they may diligently observe all the words of this law. This is no trifling matter for you, but rather your very life. Through it, you may live long in the land that you are crossing over the Jordan to possess. So don't forget, Moses says, don't ever forget. Don't forget where you've come from and what God is calling you to do now. And with that, Moses dies. He doesn't even get to make it into the promised land himself. And Deuteronomy concludes with this, Deuteronomy 34, verse 11 and 12. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform, and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that he performed in the sight of all of Israel. And that's where we leave the story. We see the people, the Hebrew people, on the entrance to the promised land in capable hands of the new leader, Joshua. Now, I told you at the beginning of the sermon that I would also leave you with a tool that will equip you to be able to, no matter how much or little experience you have with Scripture, to be able to open the Bible and hear a word for your life today. Over a dozen years ago, I came across this practice. And for me, it has become, I'm not joking, the single most important thing in my adult spiritual life. I was already an ordained minister. I had been serving a church for almost 10 years, or churches, and I came across this way of reading scripture that I call scripture journaling. The goal of scripture journaling is not to get through the Bible, not to read through and to check off all the chapters you read. The, the goal is to hear a word from God, and it can happen any day you choose, any day you have time to sit down and read. So, there's four basic parts. I think some of you may have an insert in your bulletin that says SOAP. If you don't have one, we'll have some more next week. You can just remember the very simple acronym S-O-A-P, SOAP. There's four parts. You just pick up a journal, a, a piece of paper, or, or a notebook. And the first thing you're going to do is you're going to write down the scripture. This is one verse or phrase or passage that just stands out to you. So as you're reading, as you read through whatever your assigned passage is or whatever you choose to read, what just seems interesting to you? It doesn't have to be the theme, the central theme of the whole scripture. Just what stands out? What piques your curiosity? And just write that down. That's the S part, scripture. It could be one word. It could be a phrase. It could be a whole verse. Second, and by the way, if you don't understand the whole passage, oh, here, our ushers have some that we're passing out now. You don't have to understand the whole, the whole passage. Just write about whatever it is you do understand. Second, O is for observation. And this is simply stating what seems to be happening in this reading. Like the, the passage that you picked out, the word, the verse, 
how does that fit into the larger picture of what? And it doesn't have to be any deep theological insight to just how does it fit with the overall reading? Basic context. A is for application. How does it apply to your life? This is the great part. This is how God begins to speak to us through Scripture. And, and you don't have to wait for some divine Charlton Heston voice to magically appear in your room when you're reading. Just how does it connect to your life? What, what are you, how does it apply? What, what connections can you make? Sometimes when I, when, I go, when I do scripture journaling, I pick a verse or a phrase, and I think I know where I'm going to be writing about. And as I start writing, suddenly I find that I'm writing in a different way, or I think of something I didn't think about earlier. That's your application. This is... This is God speaking to you through your writing. And then we finish with P, with prayer. Because scripture reading can be prayer time. A lot of times we come to God and we have a list of all the people and things in our lives that we know we need God's help with. And that's a great way of praying. But this is a chance for God to speak to us. And each time we open the pages of Scripture and we pick a section to read and we begin looking through this and writing down the Scripture and observation and application, we learn something. The prayer part is, what do you want to say back to God? It can be a thank you. It can be a, oh man, I totally miss this in my life and help me to, to do things differently, whatever it may be. And it can be one sentence or it can be a whole paragraph. Scripture, observation, application, prayer. It's as simple as that. So you can pick your own uh, journal. Uh, On the back of the bulletin, we have what's normally the three questions of the week. Instead of three questions, I gave you three options for scripture journaling. So what I hope you'll do is sometime when you have about a half an hour, that's usually what it takes me, maybe a little bit less if you're a quick writer, when you have a half an hour, pick one of these passages, take out that script, that soap page that you just got as an insert, And then just go through it. And if you're married or you have a family, why don't you, as your whole family, do this? It doesn't have to be at the same time. You can let people do it on their own time. And then come back and say, well, what did you journal about? Well, I picked this verse or I picked this word. And it's interesting to see in such a short reading how many different messages God may give to us through the power of Scripture. So that's where we're going to leave our series today. And if you would like to have a copy of the sermon to help you remember some of the themes and what each book is about, we'll be putting it up on the website probably uh, by Tuesday. You can not only listen to it, but download a hard copy and maybe just throw it in a folder if you want or just to help you remember. But you won't want to miss next week. We finished the first five books of the Bible. I'm going to do all the rest of the Old Testament next week. So we'll be staying until 7 p.m. Just plan accordingly. No, it'll be in the same about half an hour uh, preaching time frame that I normally do. May God continue to help each of us understand how we fit into the grand scheme of God's amazing biblical story.